Welcome to My Life Exodus Supplied, episode 210. We will begin with uh, what, that which is timely. We're in the week, the beginning of the week of Shabbos Pashas Achri Gedeshim. And that's Israel, it's actually Shabbos Pashas Emir. It will be Pashas Emir, as we will discuss later in this program. And next Shabbos, Achagadeshim is also Yud Gimel Ir, which is the 66th yard site of the Rebbe's youngest brother, Rabbi Yisrael Arya Leib. So let's speak about that. We'll begin with Rabbi Yisrael Arya Leib, and then I'll move into Achagadeshim based on different sikhs of the Rebbe. But here is a provocative question that came in, which is What is the story with the Rebbe's brother, Rabbi Yisrael Arya Leib? In connection to Yud Gimel Ir, which is Rabbi Yisrael Arya Leib's 66th yard site, I would like to ask you to ask, I would like to ask you to speak about him. From reports about, about the Rebbe's brother, it seems that he had an exceptional mind and had an out-of-ordinary understanding of Chassidus, which he studied passionately. However, the people who knew him after leaving Russia say he did not remain observant. Nevertheless, he maintained the Chassidus Chavrusa with Nochem Goldschmidt, I ask you to explain what, may, what to make of Rabbi Yisrael Ar-Yaleib, learning Chassidus in depth at a time period when publicly or and externally we didn't know what his behavior was. I was really wondering whether I should address this, but since this is not the first time someone's asked the question, and I don't believe in shying away from questions that may even seem somewhat a little disrespectful, because the questions of all questions are allowed, and yet, the question is how we address something of this nature. So the first thing I want to say is, in general, out of, not just out of respect, but also out of sensitivity, it's not our job to be parkinzach, which means to be delving into and understanding what's going on in general in other people's lives. Because who knows? What do we know about a person's life? What do we know what they're really made of? Especially someone that is not here now, and, we, and, and most of us never met him, and even those that may have seen him or heard about him is only in passing, Mostly a private man, most of his life was really lived in the, in the communities that were not known to most of to most of Chassidim. This is in general about every human being, especially about a person who's a brother of the Rebbe, son of Rabbi Yitzchok, an enikel, a person that comes from Beis Harav, basically. So in general, it's not our job to go and look just like this says a din. It says We don't look at a king when he's taking it while he's taking a haircut, but everyone knows the king takes a haircut. What you know is what you know, that what you see is what you see. There's a certain sensitivity necessary, even though seeing is seemingly like, what's the difference once you know, who cares if you see? Seeing has an effect, and it's not our job to be looking into the melech's, into the king's inner chamber, in the private things that he does. First of all, there's the kovod ha-melech, the honor of the melech. Secondly, there's his privacy and his issues. And in this case, I believe this also is relevant to the Rebbe's brother, as well as to the Rebbe's Rebetzin, as well as to the Rebbe himself. That which we need to know, which is the Rebbe's directives and teda. That's what the Rebbe uh, showed us and revealed to us, as the Rebbe would say very often about the Friedrich Rebbe, that the Friedrich Rebbe, if he told us something, or he wanted us to see his behavior, that's a lesson. That's a lesson of a tzaddik, of a Rebbe, teaching us something. That which they did not go ahead and advertise means maybe that's something we don't have to go and delve into. 
And yet I still read the question, because as I said, I still believe that questions have to be asked, but then we address it in a chassidish way, what is what we were taught, this is what we were trained and taught. So I'm not here to go ahead and speculate about something especially, even with the research that one would do or anything, what are we going to discover already? We'll discover something, somewhat eyewitnesses have seen, and not much more. So I would rather talk about it from the context the way we should talk about it, which is what we know that are the facts that we are aware of both biographically and also the things that Ebbe himself said about his brother and uh, publicly and privately and also in writing. And that's what I'm going to address. Now, as often, I've already discussed with Gimliel in the past, in both in episodes 115 and 161. So I'm not going to go through all that I spoke then. I refer you to there. And here's a good opportunity to tell you you can access all the archives, including these, these episodes. They're all time-stamped in the YouTube videos. And, you could, uh, and as I said, it complements that which I'm going to discuss right now. So let's go over a few basic things about the Rabbi Sarayi and uh, being that Yud Gimelir, and being that the Reb himself was Misyachis, he, he, he addressed this day, and on Fabrengans that were connected to this date, as well as, as I'll mention shortly, and discussed at length back in episode 115, something the Rebbe, the Rebbe spoke, a Sikha, when he stood up from Shiva in the year Tafshin Yud Beis, Yud Tesir, which was at the end of the Shiva, that the Rebbe spoke a few words about about the Shiva and about his brother, which is a very fascinating Rishima, which I think is worth reading and learning, and I'll refer you that to that shortly. Let's begin from the beginning. What we know is the following, that Rabbi Yisrael was born on Chof Aleph Ir, Tofre Samach Vav. That would make him approximately five years younger than the Rebbe. He was um, the, thir- the third son. There was the Rebbe, there was Absalom de Ber, called Beryl or Dave Ber. I don't know if they was, I think Absalom de Ber. And the third brother, Rabbi Yisrael Arieleib. They were all three geniuses, each in their own way, and there are many stories told about it, people who witnessed it and saw it in their home. So it's biographical. Um, in Tofresh Pei Gimel, Rabbi Yisrael Arieleib, or sometimes called Label, came with the Rebbe to uh, Leningrad, which was where the Friedrich Rebbe was. That was the first time they would see the Friedrich Rebbe. They spent time there, and the Rebbe was more discreet, Rabbi Yisrael Arieleib, people... It was a like with him, which means they enjoyed him because he fabrenged and his chassidus and they would talk to him. He was the more outgoing, so to speak, of the brothers. Obviously, the Friedrich Rebbe, due to the upheavals, would end up being arrested and left Russia, so the former Soviet Union, Tafresh Peites. Rabbi Sarayi stayed on till Tafresh Tzadik. Things were getting even more difficult and he left under a pseudonym. I think he used the name Gurari. And he ended up coming to Berlin where his brother, the Rebbe, was. The Rebbe left Berlin, the Rebbe Tzachai Mushkin, Tofre Sadi Gimel. Rabbi Sarayi stayed on another year, and of course Nazis were beginning to come to power. So he finally fled in 1930, Tofre Sadi Dal, that would be 1934. And from there he went to Eretz Yisrael. He got married in the summer of, um, at the end of the summer of Tofre Sadi Test, that would be 1939, to his wife Ginya, I believe was her name, Ginya, right? They had a daughter, one child, in 1945, Tov Shinhei in Eretz Her name was Dalia. Ginya has passed away since. Dalia is around. Many Yadichis Yom Vesharim Tevis. Lives in Israel, I believe. And in Tov Yud, in 1950, a little after the time when the Friedrich Rebbe was nostalgic, Yisrael and his wife and daughter moved to Liverpool, England, where two years later he suffered a heart attack 
at the young age, right before his 46th birthday, passed away in Yud Gimel Iyar, which is what we're honoring now, 66 years later. This is some biographical sketch, which took some research to put together. I took it from different places where people written it up. Written up. Now, as far as what we know about him, as I said, we know very little about the person. We know some Rishimus, we see some of the Kiruvim, the Fridic that Rebbe gave him. But I want to now move to the times that Rebbe spoke about. So then when the Rebbe sat Shiva in 1952, Yud Gimel and stood up from Shiva in the 19th of year, the Rebbe spoke a few words, and this has later been published in Lukut Sikhs volume 3, page 976 in a note, footnote, and footnote 19, and in volume 27, page 363. It's a fascinating Rishima about Yerida Tzayda Chalia, which you can see from that Rishima many things that, that the Rebbe hints to about Rabbi Sol Arieleib, including the fact, obviously, a passing is a Yerida, but he explains there one of the first times that Rebbe's Machader is the idea that a Yerida, a descent, is part of the ascent. And that everybody, at the end of the day, will ultimately ascend. So you could see he's hinting to this Rabbi Sol challenges and his so-called descent, if you want to put it that way. He even refers to different versions, different variations of how a Neshama goes through its own journey. In episode 115, I went through it in detail, so I'm not going to do it again now. You can refer to the 115, episode 115, or you can look it up in the source. One thing I will mention there, he cites from the Derech Mitzvah a Maimer from the Alta Rebbe, about, uh, about the Isser of Balimum, Kehanim being uh, Balimum, handicapped Kehanim, are not allowed to serve in the Beis Amigdash, in the Temple. So he speaks there that a Moshul that the Alta Rebbe gives that... <clears throat> That sometimes one of the ways, one of the strategies, war strategies, is that you send out someone, some soldiers, to so-called lure in uh, the enemy. And the enemy comes out from their hiding place and then you can conquer them. So some people fall in order to win the wars. You have to have some people that sometimes fall. So the Rebbe gives that as an example of one of the ways that an Ashama goes through its journeys. So you can derive from there, more importantly, not about his personal life, that's not our, our issue unless we're told about it, but ra- as I mentioned before, but rather the lessons that you can learn that a person who's gone through his, whatever he went through and his challenges, there's a lesson to be learned for each of us of how Neshama goes through his journey and ultimately everything is coming to a greater and higher place. That was in that Rishima. A common denominator with that is the talks the Rebbe gave in later years. Well, I should mention that the Rebbe also said to my modern on Shabbos Pasha Ache Gdeshim, Tovshin Chafalaf in the Rebbe's room it was also Yud Gimel Tish, uh, Yud Gimel Ir. and um, and the Maimer Vigdash the Emer Tovshin Chavhei. So those are two. But later in the Sichus, I'll give you the Sichus Tovshin Memhei Achigdashim like this year was Yud Gimel Ir. and the Rebbe explained. And then say Pesach Sheni Tovshin Mem Zayin, and finally Achigdashim Tovshin Nun Alaf. In all of them, you'll find one common denominator. The Rebbe talks about the name of Israel Aryeleib and explains how in it is hidden the combination of tzaddikim and balei tshuva, the transformation of darkness to light. In the sikha of, and this again I spoke about back in episode 115, so I'm, again, I'm not going with the details. I want to just focus on that Israel Aryeleib and his complex life, what we derive from it is that it's not just a straight line, it had the combination, which all of us have in some way, subtly or more than subtle, overtly, that we go through a darker time and that's to be transformed. 
as the Rebbe hints that the name, the, the name of the Bala Yotze, meaning Yisrael Leib, his name is connected to Achrik Deshim, to Parsha as well. Tzadikim Yisrael is the Aved of Tzadikim, which is the story of Achrei. And Bala Tshuva is, the, is, the, is, the, is hinted to in the word Aryeh Leib, because Aryeh Leib is, uh, is Gvura, and you transform it to something of Gdusha, that's Kadeshim, as discussed there at length. And the same thing in the other sikhs that I, that I uh, just uh, cited, the idea, the same theme. So you see that the Rebbe went beyond the so-called personal uh, matters, and as well as sometimes it could just be sensationalism, and focused on the lesson that we learn from this man, the Rebbe's youngest brother. <clears throat> Which leads us to Achrik Deshen. This year, Achrik Deshen comes together, these two Pashas. And as I said, they hint to Achrik David of Tzadikim, Achrik Meish Nei Aaron. This is after the passing of the two sons of Aaron, of course connected to the passing of Yisrael Ayyuleib. And what the Bnei Aaron were, Bekrevi Kodesh. When Meisha says to Aaron, after they passed away, Bekrevi, I heard from Hashem that Bekrevi, the ones close to me, I will be sanctified. So I thought it meant you and I. But the fact is, it's your sons. Because their sons sanctified God's name. They went into the Kedush Kedoshim, they went into the Mishkan without passion and the zeal and the excitement. But unfortunately, an alien fire, I just saw recently the Rebbe edited, instead of foreign fire, Ezzari calls it alien fire. For the different reasons. But it was not inside their, their weakness, it was inside their strength, due to the fact that they had such passion and connection. However, it was a rotze without a shuv. That's why in this parsha, Achri Mezgdeshim, we come, now we'll say, now I will tell you how you enter into the Holy of Holies. So this is not, so we're talking here, a chet, but a chet on their level was a chet that not, now needs to be corrected. How to enter? Entering the Holy of Holies is a mitzvah, and on Yom Kippur we do it, but you have to know how to enter and when to enter and with the right bittel and the way that you could enter and, and exit and come out unscathed, only grow from it instead of being hurt by it. So that's Achrei. Then comes Gdeshim, Gdeshim to you, which of course is to sanctify yourself, which is direct connection. How do we sanctify ourselves? You could say we learn a lesson from the sons of Aaron that we should stay away from too much holiness because it can hurt us. Stay away from the fire. No, that's not the lesson. The lesson is how to enter holiness without being hurt and, with, and without being arrogant and with doing it the right way that you should become sanctified. Because I am holy. And the famous expression from Chassidus interprets the Medrash. The Medrash says, Because you would think that Kedushasi, you would think that Kedushani, that we, Yochel Kameni, Kedushim, Ti, you, Kedushani. Sanctify yourself because I am sacred. So the Medrash, the Teres Kenim, on the Pasuk says, Yochel Kameni, you would think that you can be as holy as I am. So he says, No, Kedushasi, Lemaylem, Kedushaschem. So the verse is not saying that we come. We are comparable our holiness to we, we become holy because God is holy, but God's holiness is also kedushasi. God's holiness is is higher than kedushim to you. Comes to this and says, don't interpret it as a question and an answer, but interpret it as a statement. Talmud that yochel kameni. You have to read benechusa. You could become as holy as I am. Why? Kedushasi lemaila. My Kedusha above is Mikdushashem, comes from your holiness. See how it turns it around. Instead of saying Kedushasi, Lemaila Mikdushashem, the emphasis on my holiness is higher than yours. Kedushasi, Lemaila, my holiness above is based on your sanctification below. 
as we find from many titles from the from the Balshemta, from the Magid, Hashem Silcha, that Hashem is sometimes compared to a shadow. How could you call God a shadow? Because God's actions, so-called reactions, are determined by our actions. So when we shed a light, God, in a sense, responds with a shadow. Now, God forbid to say that's less than ours, but it means that God bound Himself, the divine bound itself to our asusadilatata. Our efforts can elicit a response commensurate to whatever our effort puts into it. So Gdeshim Tiyu really is more than just a mitzvah for us to sanctify ourselves and be similar to God, but also to draw down the God, or the holiness from the, the divine. What that means in simple Chassidus applied language means that we, our responsibilities in life are not just on a mortal level where we accomplish some things on a very small scale, what human beings can do. We actually have a profound relationship with the deepest, highest levels on the cosmic the realities and even higher than that with the divine and we have a partnership where we can when our action does not just reverberate and it does not just cause change in this world it reverberates and causes a ripple effect all the way to the highest levels of say the all the way to kudushasi lamaila that is also affected by our behavior here when we make a kiddush hashem when you walk in the street and people see you and say this is what a divine person is like someone who's following what god wants that's a Kiddush Hashem, you actually are drawing down and becoming the representative, the arms and legs, the living example of what the divine is about. Making God beloved by others, like the Medrash says, on Hashem not just that you should love, you should make God beloved through your behavior. I don't want to mention the opposite, but Chil Hashem is the opposite. When a person behaves the opposite way, the Tzalem Elikim, they defile it, God forbid, then what happens is, in people's eyes, that's what God appears to be. And this you see as a common thing on an ongoing basis, especially today with all the stereotypes and all the negative attitudes that people have to religion and to religious people due to their judgmentalism or condescension or dogma or anger and so on. It is even more vital to be a living example, a beautiful example, that what it says in the in the is Tiferes Lei, Tiferes Lei Sel, that people look at you and see this is beautiful. That the more godly someone is, the more beautiful and more refined they are as a human being. And that becomes actually the model that people will look at because they don't have other way to find God except through people who behave according to what God wants. So when someone behaves in that way and says, wow, look how beautiful this person is behaving. That's God? I want a part of it. If on the contrary, someone does something and says, that's God, I don't want to have anything to do with it. That is why behaving in the appropriate way is not just for us, between us, to be socially, uh, socially, social etiquette and appropriate behavior. But it actually can have life and death consequences of how a person will look at God and look at God's laws. And this is true in parenting, in education, and in influencing the world around you. Because people look at you and they say, they don't say, oh, let me look at the book. They look at human beings. It may not, may not be what we like. We like to say, look at the, what it says in the book, don't look at me. But the fact of the matter is people will judge God by the people who so-called represent God. And that's the case not just with Hashem, but in any case, a person who's a shliach of the Rebbe, that's how they will judge. It makes no difference. You could say, that's, the Rebbe is not me, but you are right now behaving in a way that people look at you and they expect of you something. That expectation has, has consequences. And we're talking of, obviously in a positive way. So the lesson of Achrei uh, Gdeshim is essentially how a person behaves their, in their lives. And the Ramban, of course, a thousand years ago, already, uh, Bavarans already cautions us 
Why it says Kadeshim, you shouldn't be a novel, but a Shusa Teda. A novel is a despicable person who does it with the name, the name of Teda. It means it's, it, may not be, it may be permitted, but it's despicable behavior using Teda to justify the despicable behavior. And that is the part of the Chil Hashem, of course, because that's the worst possible thing. Here's a person using Teda against the spirit of Teda. And that is also alluded to and hinted to in the Posse Kadeshim to you. And Yisrael Ayyulayb, through his challenges and through his life, which clearly was not in a direct path as most of us understand it, is t- it teaches us the lesson that no matter where you are and whatever happens in your life has to be transformed, as the Rebbe writes and says in that talk that he gave 66 years ago when he stood up from Shiva and Yutasir about how what lessons to us as we go through our journeys and our ebbs and flow and ebbs and uh, and flow our ups and downs and life and our twists and turns. Okay. Let us move on now that we covered that. The next question is, why is there a discrepancy between the Torah reading in Israel and the diaspora? Two tracks of portions. Every year when there's a discrepancy between diaspora and Israel concerning the weekly Pasha, it irritates and annoys me. I feel like there's a, there's this split. Why couldn't the Chacham come up with a better solution so that we can all read and study the same Pasha? So a little background. And that's as well we know that there's no Yom Tov Sheinah Shalgalias. There's no second day holiday. So when this, when this Pesach ends, is on the seventh day of Pesach. But what happens when the seventh day of Pesach is on a Friday? And Achish Pesach is Shabbos, like this year. So that Shabbos, which in here, in, in, in outside of Israel, we're praying Yachon Pesach, so it's not yet a Shabbos Parsha. We read the Parsha connected to the last day of Pesach. In Eretz Yisrael, it's already after Pesach. So it's the Parsha this year, Parsha Shmini. So in Eretz Yisrael, they started reading Shmini, and we won't read Shmini till the next week, which we did. Then the next following week, in Eretz Yisrael, Sazidim Etzeda, and we're reading, when we're reading Shmini, Eretz Yisrael, they're reading Sazidim Etzeda. When we're reading Sazim Etzeda, they're reading Achrigdeshim. When they're reading, when we, when we're reading Achrigdeshim, they're reading Bahar. But this year, it straightens out by Bahar and Bechukesai. Because Bahar and Bechukesai are two chapters that can be read separately or together, so that's when it balances out. That in Israel, they're going to read, we're going to read Bahar Bechukesai separately, and they will read it together. So that's where it'll straighten out. So Emer, they're reading Emer, and we're reading Achrigdeshim. When we read Emer, they'll be reading Bahar. And when we read Bahar and Bechukese, they'll be reading Bechukese. And then comes Bamidbar and Shvurs and so on. So the question is asking, why do there have to be such a discrepancy? It's a very good question. I've never seen an answer to it. And if anybody has, it's very possible that Eber may have spoken about it. I have not found it. But if someone has something on this, please share. And here's an opportunity before I go on to explain this what I think is a way of explaining it, a good opportunity you can share easily, both ask questions anonymously or with your address if you'd like to add it, but it's completely anonymous and confidential at MeaningfulLife.com slash MyLife. And there you'll find a forum where you can submit any question, comment, and so on. There you can also find all the archives I mentioned before, as well as the essays, the new essay contest, which is already the fourth year of essays that are also available there. It's a very rich archive, and you spend a lot of good time there finding quality material. This is also a good opportunity to tell you, as I always do, this program, a lot of work goes into it, a lot of research. We have a team doing this, and uh, it's supported by community sponsorship. 
because it's a free service. So I please encourage you and I ask you and beseech you to help us in any way you can financially. Go to MeaningfulLife.com slash sponsorship. If you take any benefit from this program or you see benefit in it, please give, give generously and as you see fit. So with that, let's go now to this question. So as I said, I haven't found an answer directly, but there's a similar question which I alluded to that maybe can mostly be exp- come to explain this as well. The etzaminion of Yom Tov So the reason why the Yom Tov is because in the time of the Beis Amigdash, as we know, how were they Makadesh the Chedesh? How did they know when is a new month? New month of Nisan, say. So you had witnesses who would go out and look for the new moon. And when they would come to Bezdin and say, we saw a new moon, and they were verified, Bezdin would announce, Rishchedesh is on this and this day. How did the rest of the people know? The people right nearby heard it, especially in Yerushalayim. So they had a whole system, the Talmud talks about a whole system, how they'd go up with flares, with torches on mountains, and wave the torches, and in that way, the message got out. There was no email then. There was no other ways to get out. The fastest way would be immediate announcement. These torches would reach all, all the corners of Israel. So by <clears throat> so before the Rishchidosh, before the, the Rishchidosh, maybe the next day, but definitely before the holiday, before, Nisan, before, before Pesach, which was the 15th of Nisan, they knew when, when to honor the 15th. Because if Rishchidosh was announced a day earlier, it would be a day earlier. If it was announced a day later, it would be a day later. What about the Eden living outside of Eretz Yisrael? There, it took more time till the message got there. And it could have taken more time that by the time Pesach came, they didn't know. So that because of that suffolk of a day, they weren't sure whether Shkesh was this day or that day. And that could be due to the fact that calculation showed it was a certain day, but it wasn't based on the calculation, it was based on the witnesses. So that's why in Yom Tov Sheni Shal Goliath, that's the expression. A Yom Tov, second Yom Tov, due to the Goliath. Goliaths are the exiles, those out in the diaspora that were not sure whether it was one, whether it was, let's say it was on a, was it, was it on a Friday or was it on a Shabbos, uh, the beginning of Pesach. That's why you have a Yom Tov Shein Shogolias, that Achim Shab Pesach in this case, and the same thing with uh, other Yom Tov Shein Shogolias, whether it's Sukkis, Simchas and same thing with Shvuas, that you don't have just one day, you have two days because of that Suffolk. So the big question is asked in Kabbalah and in other Svarim, that's fine, but then now we go by calculations. We don't go any longer by, um, by witnesses. Now we know exactly when the new moon is because we know the astronomical calculations. So why is there, why are we still honoring Yom Toshen and Shalgolis? So there's Biyurim in Nigla. The Biyur in Kabbalah, brought in Chassidus, is from Er Nera, from the Ramak. The Alter Rebbe brings it, and he explains something fascinating, which answers a bigger question. I mean, God could have done it a different way, like you asked with the Parshas. You had to wait with the torches, and they should know. Why should there be a suffolk in the first place? There couldn't be another way that it could be handled. And the answer is because in Eretz Yisrael, there's a powerful Kedushim, holiness. That holiness, one day is enough to contain that holiness. Outside of Israel, due to the fact that it's more coarse and more less spiritually refined, you need two days to contain the same energy that one day in Eretz Yisrael. So the technical reason I explained, but there's a deeper reason behind the technical reason. So think of it like two students. One student is a very advanced student. The teacher just needs one day to explain to him an idea. A, 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 poor, a, a student that's not on that level, you need two days. So because Eretz the holiness of Eretz is able to contain it in one day, outside of Eretz is two days. 
That's why it remains even after the calculations are here, and we know exactly when is Rishchidosh. So we still, because we still need an extra day to absorb that same intensity that in Israel only requires one day. So perhaps we can explain the same thing with the Pashas. In a way, Israel is ahead of us, one week ahead. One week ahead because, because of its refined state, which is, of course, the result there's no Yom Tov Shein So they begin right away reading the next Pasha, Shmini, and stay ahead and remind us that Israel has that so-called superiority. It is the promised land, after all. Additionally, it can create a yearning that for those of us that are outside of Israel to yearn to have that time Ketusha. So the discrepancy itself awakens us to the fact that we're not on that level of Eretz Yisrael, and that we're looking to do that. And when we'll bring Mashiach will come, there'll be Eretz Yisrael, Asid Eretz Yisrael, Shetispasha Bechol HaRotzes. Israel will spread to all the land. Yerushalayim will spread to all of Israel. However you explain it, but the point is the Gedusha will permeate all of the world. So the discrepancy perhaps was left exactly to keep that point in mind. Now at some point, of course, we want to balance it back, so that's why there's a balance. But a number of weeks... It, it remains separate. As a matter of fact, some years you even wait till Chukas Bolok, till they finally reconcile. The same thing, uh, you can ask the same question. You know, before Baharach Kesa, we read Raf Sazirim and Seder, Achrik Deshim, there was plenty of opportunity to balance them. You could have split Sazirim and Seder into two. So this may be one of the explanations. This is completely my humble explanation based on the story with the Yom Toshen and Shogolis. Next question, completely different topic. Why are many women on a mitzvah-based walkathon dressed not sneezdik? Okay. A number a while back, there was a walk for Yitzi Horowitz. May you have a complete refor shleima. How come there are many women walking in a non-sneeze way, tichlech in public? I'm not going to go through the other details they describe here. For the beloved Shliach Yisrofitzel ben Bracha Horowitz, this is the last thing he needs. He needs women to increase in their tzniyus, not chas b'shalom decrease. This too, I was wondering whether I should read this question, because sometimes talking about tzniyus in this way can also be non-tzniyusdik. But more importantly, what's the point just to talk negatively about people? What's the you know we were taught by the Rebbe and b'chal be'apiteda? You talk about someone, even loshen hara, even if it's true, you don't have to speak about it. What's the point? Unless there's some tiyelus. So I thought about this, and I said, you know what, there could be a tayelis. Firstly, like this, Tzniyas is definitely an important topic. Not only that, I could refer you to episodes 4, 97, and 98, 110, 118, 122, 171, 172, and 204. So it's not a theme I've ignored. It's a theme that is an important theme, but there's how you speak about it and who speaks about it, and what's the objective. The goal is, obviously, is to heighten the level of modesty, which is, you shall walk with modesty before God. Our job here is not to be giving Musa to other people, especially if that's not going to make any difference. Very nice to be outraged, and, and I understand where it's coming from, but everything has to be done toward a tayelis, toward a tachlis. So I'll tell you what this reminded me, a knee-jerk reminder that I had when I read this note, this question. It was a person who came to my to a classes of mine. He was a doctor, and he um, one day he comes. He says, "Due to the fact that you taught me so much and I'm so indebted to you, I'd like to give you a gift." And he gives me a pile of letters from the Rebbe to him in English to this doctor. 
And with the Rebbe's signature, literal his original signature. So I said to him, you know, doctor, keep it. Give it to your family. Give me copies of it. I'd like to read the copies, but I don't need to have the original. But he insisted. He says, I have no one to leave it with. I'm giving it to you. Fine. One of the letters jumps out at me. When he, as he was becoming so-called more observant, started going to shul, he had a problem. He went to a shul where the person sitting right in front of him or near him would speak in the middle of davening. And it was disturbing. He was trying to concentrate, try to focus. And he became very angry about it. And he writes to the Rebbe, what should he do about it? Now, we don't know the Rebbe's, I don't see his letter to the Rebbe, but the Rebbe responds in response to your question. Middle of the letter. The Rebbe speaks about other things and says, in response to your question about the person speaking in Shul and what you should do about it. So, my, so clearly he, he probably wrote the suggestion because that's what the Rebbe alludes to. He should either leave Shul, should he yell at the guy. The Rebbe says, instead of doing all that, what you should do is think to yourself, look how beautiful a Jew, even a Jew, who speaks in shul during davening, still wants to come to shul. That was the Rebbe's response to him. Now, I knew him, and I understood perhaps why the Rebbe wrote to him this way. Would the Rebbe write that to everyone? I can't answer that question, but that answer struck me. Like a Levi Yitzchuk Badichever answer. A limutzchus. So I said to myself, that here are women walking for a mitzvah to help a person who tragically has such suffering in family, such spirit, to try to help him. They're walking, let's say it's true. I'm not even going to accept that it's true, but let's assume that for a moment not everyone's perfectly sneezed. From the, what maybe that response should be is, look how beautiful these Jews are. Even someone who's not yet aware, or doesn't fully understand, or doesn't fully sensitive to sneeze, is still ready to walk to help another Jew. Maybe that should be the attitude. Attitudes like that doesn't mean we're ignoring the issue. The Rebbe's not saying it's good for you, the guy to speak in shul. It's about us and what you're supposed to learn from it when we see something like that. So we can become the witch hunter and come with a stick and start saying, I'm going to become the sneeze police that's going to determine. And if you feel you can succeed that way, by all means, I don't think you can. And even frankly, I wouldn't even say by all means. Who says that's the derech? However, if you can look at Jews the way I just described it, as the Rebbe says to this fellow, this doctor, look how beautiful a Jew is. Even someone that may not be perfectly dressed is also doing a mitzvah. Guaranteed, if you then spoke to that person in that sensitive way, you probably would have more influence. Because it means it's you're not coming with your anger or with your judgment, even if it's justified, but rather with coming from a ways that actually have impact on people. So I'm not here to justify what people's behavior is. This is not my job, not to justify, not to criticize. We want to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. I often find that the people who are attacking the people who they think are not sneezed, it can be as much of the problem as the people who they think is the problem. So, enough said about that. And let's continue on and look at all these situations as opportunities, opportunities to bring more gedusha, more holiness, and be an example of what it means to be a modest person. And yes, you have a positive influence in beautiful ways. In peaceful and, and pleasant manner. Next question. Next question borders on a chassidist question, but I put it here as well because it's a topic that comes up again and again, and that is the issue of non-Jews in, um, and our attitude to them. So the way the question was, was phrased was, what resides on the right side of the non-Jewish, non-Jew's heart? Shalom, Rabbi Jacobson. Just thinking, written in chapter 9, is that the right side of a heart of a Jew is the second place of the Nefesh Alikis. 
If so, what is on the right side of a non-Jew? A Yetzirah Tev? So let's be specific. What does it say in chapter 9? In chapter 9 he says that there's the two forces. There's the Nefesh Elikis, Nefesh Abamis, the animals, divine soul and the animal soul. The divine soul is Mishkan, it rests, resides in the mind, in the reflective mind. And from there it goes to the right side of the heart that doesn't have the passionate blood, as the Rebbe explains, that blood is not formed there. There's blood, but it's primarily more the Ruach, this, the, the oxygen that, that oxygen, oxygenates the blood. The left side of the heart, with the passionate blood, which is the passion of a human being, that's the, res, that's the residence, the dwelling place of the Nefesh Abam, the animal soul. So basically, you say two sides of the heart, the two ventricles, the two chambers of the heart. One is the animal soul, and one is the divine soul, as it comes from the mind. Then he continues and says how the animal soul, the blood, as soon as the blood rushes from the heart to the mind, the animal soul can also influence through its impulsive behavior, it can also affect the mind and make it subjective. So the question is asked, since it says in chapter 2 in Tanya, Nefesh Hashem is Yisrael, that only in Jews has the second Nefesh, Nefesh Lekiz. So what's going on in the right, what does the right side of the heart represent in a non-Jew? The left side is clear, there's Nefesh Abamis. Different type of Nefesh Abamis. It's a very good question. And I will um, read it. I'll give you, I'll give you I'll, but I'm going to give two more questions in this discussion. And what this next question, and I'll go back to this, answer this as well, together with the other questions. The next question is regarding the spiritual psychological makeup of a non-Jew. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, in the area of psychotherapy, psychology, etc., how would one view a non-Jew's neshama makeup or psychological makeup? My question is that we learn that a Jew can be viewed by the nefesh alikis and the nefesh abamis, the divine soul and the animal soul. However, when one is trying to help and improve the mental, emotional state of a non-Jew, how is one to view him or or her in terms of spiritual, psychological makeup? Would one talk in terms of positive and negative inclination? And finally, a third question in this family, and that is, are the non-Jews that Hashem puts into each of our spheres of influence part of the chalik of the world, part of the world that each of us has been given to elevate? Are we responsible for elevating and refining the nations of the world? Are they responsible for elevating themselves? Or is it some combination of the two? As a geiris, as a convert, I have many non-Jews in my sphere of influence. I've noticed that as I've worked on breaking different clippers in my life, members of my birth family have simultaneously resolved related issues. For example, as I was working to break my taiva for money, my desire for money, my sister mentioned to me that she had finally managed to get her irresponsible spending under control. Under such coincidences, quote-unquote, God forbid to say there's really such thing as a coincidence, have happened many times, and I've always wondered what the spiritual connection is. Thank you so much. Okay, let's address all these questions in one fell swoop, and I will refer you firstly to along the discussions I've had about the whole uh, role of non-Jews in the world and their spiritual uh, psychology and their spiritual destiny in episodes 30 and our responsibility to them in episodes 30, 31, 32 of 85, 100, 122, 157, 192. Yeah, we have been doing right now 209 episodes, so many topics have been covered, thank God, extensively. So whatever I say is complemented by what I've already discussed in those episodes, if you want a fuller picture. To answer this question, I want to refer you to a powerful sikha from the Rebbe 
that was delivered on Yud Beis Tammuz Tovshin Mem Aleph. I remember it actually very vividly. And the Rebbe spoke about the Yud Beis Tammuz, of course, is the Chaga Geula, the, day of, the, day, the holiday of redemption of the Friedrich Rebbe from Soviet prison. And the miraculous recovery, I should add, re, re, miraculous liberation. And there, the Rebbe speaks of that many lessons, but he tells the story. The Friedrich Rebbe was not the first time that he was um, that he was imprisoned. The first imprisonment when he was a younger boy, for something he did. And when he was in prison, he was in a dark prison. The dark prison. Uh, suddenly, he heard a sound—the sound of an animal. So he got very scared. Until he remembered that one should not be scared, and one should connect to Hashem and betachin, the faith and, and trust, and so on. The Rebbe said, why we told this story? Because there's a tremendous lesson. What is the fear that the, that the, the animal, the goat, or whatever it was, that seagull, that was there in the prison with him represents the animal soul. And the animal soul can, can, can be wild, can be impulsive, and can do things that are very destructive. So we can be very afraid of it. The Rebbe, in the other end of the corner of the cell, represents a divine soul. So this symbolizes, this represents the story, the battle between the two, and how the divine soul conquers the fears that it has of the animal soul and ultimately learns to harness the animal soul toward good and positive ends. The Rebbe then continues and said, this lesson is not just for Jews, it's also for non-Jews. Why? Because every person on earth has two forces, two voices inside of him. As in the book, in the book of Kehelis, the spirit of the man rises upward. And the spirit of the animal descends downward. One is transcendent in nature, searching spiritual growth, searching higher purpose and meaning and a higher, devoting itself to a higher cause. The other looks down is the animal, the Ruach HaBehemah, which is about survival and its own selfish needs. And there too, it could be afraid. Why? Because we live in a world where sometimes the animal spirit dominates. So the lesson from the story is that we shouldn't be afraid that everyone, the Rebbe goes on to the whole thing, the responsibility of non-Jews to bring civilization to the world, to live a life of tzedek, v'yesha, justice and virtue. The Rebbe speaks about the moment of silence in schools for children, to realize that there's a God and live by God's laws, God's seven Noahide universal laws of civilization. Based on this, I actually used it many times in my own work, including in writing toward a meaningful life, but based on this, you can easily say that the right side of the heart by a non-Jew is, is the Ruach Odom, Elo Lamayla. Me'in, it's not the Nefesh Hashenis, as we know, as the Rebbe said in the Yechidus and Tavshin Chof, when the students ask the Rebbe, do non-Jews have a, a soul? So he says they have a spark. It's different than a Jew, but they have a divine spark. They have a divine destiny. They have a part in the world to come. And the Rambam at the end of Hilchus and Melochim, the end of the Ram, talks about how there'll be Chachamim and Nevenim and they will learn the world will be filled with divine knowledge as the waters cover the sea. On and on, as I discussed in previous episodes. So that's how I would answer this question with the right side. Again, I've not seen it specifically, but based on the how that's how I would reply. This, of course, answers the other questions as well. There's absolutely a psychological makeup of every soul, including a non-Jewish soul, and you have to, and understanding it, you can learn lessons from this, from these two sides. That everyone has this. Which non-Jew, which person on earth doesn't have a battle going on between selfish needs and transcendent ones, between survival and self-absorption and self-interest, and doing something for a greater cause? That battle 
is can be explained and addressed in that sense exactly as you said, a positive and negative inclination. And finally, to the third question, absolutely. The Rambam says at the end of chapter 8 of Hilchus Malachim, that just like we, have, we were given, just like we were given 613 mitzvahs at Sinai, we were also given the obligation to inspire and influence the non-Jewish world to follow these universal laws, also because they were given at Sinai. So God gave a blueprint for all of mankind, all of human race, to refine this world. So anyone, and that's what so many sikhs in the, in the 80s, in the mems, where the Rebbe spoke about when you go to work, don't just talk about business, talk about God to the non-Jews that you know. So the influence we have, Neir Lagoyim, is to be enlightened upon, unto the nations, absolutely. And if you're, especially if you have family and others that come in your sphere of influence, that is absolutely part of our mission. Does that mean that they can't do on their own? Of course they can do as much. As a matter of fact, when you inspire them, you're trying to inspire them that they should take it on and be sustainable on their own, not just that they do because you ask them to do it or because of your influence. You want, them, you want them to be empowered with the methodology, how to live the best possible moral, ethical, and spiritual life. The rest I leave to the other episodes where I discuss this more at length. Next question. Butterflies. You know, it's a very interesting, I found this episode to be somewhat of a little, like, interesting uh, trivia. Uh, I don't know if the trivia is the right word, but very diverse and uh, some strange topics. But so be it. Here's the question. And you'll see this question and the next one, which will probably be the, your favorite. I think it's my favorite here. Butterflies. The Rebbe's opinion about not showing non-kosher animals to kids is famous. However, what is the case regarding Butterflies. Seems like many Anash that are usually careful with the Rebbe's words, yet regarding to butterflies, they don't seem to be careful. Is there a source for that? Thanks for everything you do. Hatzlach Rab. So let's go back to the source. The source is Chav Cheshvan Tav When the Rebbe first spoke about this, this is printed in the Kutis Volume 25, page 309 to 311. The Rebbe came out then to speak about both things, two things. The images that are made in magazines and books for children should be careful to use animals or birds or fish that are pure, not impure or not kosher. And the same thing when toys or other things are given to children should also be of that sort. And you can look it up the sikha in detail. Based on what it says there, it's pretty obvious that you can see from the footnotes the exceptions. And I'll just point out a few exceptions. You see, for example, in the Pareiches, in the Beis Amigda, in the, I'm sorry, in the shuls, you see many times a picture of a lion or an eagle. They're both the highest meis or eftome. And he says, the kavonah there is because it's to remind us that we should serve Hashem, gibur kari, strong like a lion, and kal kanesha, light like an eagle, like the mission in Perkyovis. And al-derech, the Merkava. The Merkava also has a pnei arya and a pnei nesher, the face of a lion, the face of a nesher. That's one issue. The Rebbe also speaks about, you see some of the dgolim, some of the, some of the flags of the Shvatim also had an image of a snake or other things. And also the Rebbe explains that's also part of that Theravada. Because we're not talking about here, God created these animals. The question is, what do you expose people to when you have a choice? And when you're not learning a lesson. Then the Rebbe speaks something interesting about, in general, speaks about, um, that it says in Sefer Kav Yosher, that even though when a person, that a person has a right to look at animals as strange animals, come from distant lands, and, the, and Chazal made a, post, a bracha on it called Meshan Abrius, nevertheless, you should always look at it more in passing, not make an, a habit out of it. 
So the Rebbe says, according to this, we can understand the going to a Gan is to a zoo. Go to a zoo doesn't say anywhere we should only go to a zoo, only to the kosher and pure animals. And it's not a, con- a, a contradiction, because there you're looking at, as the Rebbe speaks later in the, one of the footnotes, you're not going just to look at animals, you're going to look at the creations God put into this world to help you stand in more awe and, more, and, and, and appreciate the magnificence of the creation of this world. So there's a lesson of Vedas Hashem from it. Same thing that Rebbe also brings from this Pasha's actually, where in Shmini and other Pasha's where he actually spells out the animals that are not kosher, and Rashi, actually there's images made of it, and Rashi describes it. So the Rebbe says, because there again it's to learn Torah. It's not an end in itself, but there where you have an option, you're buying a child a gift, or you're making a, you're making a, a drawing in a coloring book, or cartoons for children, well, you don't need to use these type of this, of, of, of uh, impure, why as well use a pure animal. So, so I would say the same thing when it comes to bu- uh, butterflies. Butterflies, yes, butterflies are not kosher and they're not, they're But the fact of the matter is, uh, we, we, you know, to, go, to go give someone a gift of butterflies based on the sikh, you shouldn't. But if you see a butterfly, just like if you see a cat, or you see other animals that are not necessarily kosher, they live, they exist. We don't run away. I mean, you don't have to, like he brings there, of course, you don't have to go out of the way to see it, but if you see it, you try to take a lesson from it. This is a lesson of one of God's creations. So as far as collections go, collections of butterflies, um, based on this sikh, on this sikh is probably not the right thing to do. Same thing with, uh, you could talk about other pets, it doesn't really address pets here. Um, we're not talking about for protection, we're talking about for leisure, obviously. But I would say, I'm not sure whether you're talking about, whether you're talking about butterflies as in looking at butterflies. Listen, children walk in the street, they're going to see a butterfly. If they go to certain museums, they have different selections of butterflies, uh, of uh, zoos and so on. But that could all be understood in the Rabbu Magadlu Masachah, the thing the Rebbe speaks, uh, or to make a blessing on it because it's part of God's creation. So I think that covers that. Okay. Next question. So personal question. Someone asked me, why do you wear a knitted yarmulke? Rabbi Jacobson, Rabbi Jacobson, I'm a huge fan of yours for a very long time and have gained tremendously from your wisdom and perspective. I have one question for you. I apologize if it comes off disrespectful, but why do you wear a knitted yarmulke? Isn't meaning Chabad to wear a double covering? Especially since you are a respected figure and looked up to, I'm curious because my wife wants me to wear one as well again. Thank you for everything. Okay. First of all, I didn't even know, realize that people can see what kind of yarmulke I'm wearing. But I guess you can't get away with that, and I'm not uh, hiding it. Um, so let me start with the simplest response. I'm not, I wear it really not for any particular uh, statement or reason. The fact of the matter is you may notice that I'm bald. And it happens to be a little yarmulke sticks to your head better. <laughs> I know it sounds ridiculous, but that's the technical reason, not because I have any particular preference. So we're in different yarmulkes. This one stays in my head more and doesn't slip off as much. Um, sometimes, so sometimes, as the Alter Rebbe said, the answer when they asked him why he drives with three horses and why he eats uh, meat and so on, he says horses because it makes why I'm sorry why he wears a fur coat. He says horses because the three horses over one is because it, it travel faster. Um, uh, the, the fur coat because you keep warmer and why do you cut the nails on Erev Shabbos 
after you take a bath because then they're softer, they're easier to cut. So sometimes it's not necessarily, I'm not comparing myself, God forbid, in any way to the Alter Rebbe, but sometimes something is just very practical. However, there's a good question regarding the issue is if Minik Chabad is indeed to have a double covering, so forget about the bald and forget about that, just do what everybody does. Now, I looked into this a bit more because it's interesting to see, and again, it's not a justification. I'm more than happy to wear a yarmulke with two, two makifim. The issue with the two makifim, let's just discuss some of the sources for it. The source begins in the Minik Chabad, that is in Sefer Menogim, from a letter from the Rebbe, Sefer Menhagim on page uh, 9. So in a footnote there, the Rebbe brings that we hear for the Dominic Chassidim to wear a kippah, tachas ha meaning to wear a yarmulke under the hat. And the Rebbe brings sources. This is, comes from Igris Kedish of the Rebbe, volume, where is it? Volume 10, page 393. And there he brings a whole bunch of sources from Shabbos, about the Koyin, about the double covering, basically the double covering. I would also refer you to the Tzemach Tzedek in um, the beginning of Erech Chaim, Piski Dinim, and also brings also about that by, by Chesid, uh, that Tzadik, what, what does the Tzemach Tzedek say? That the Tamid Chachamim would cover their heads with an additional covering. But this is specifically a hat and a, and a yarmulke. I cannot find anywhere, and this again, if somebody has a source, by all means, please send, share it, that the yarmulke itself should have two. It could be based on this became the minig, but it's not written anywhere that I could find so far, and I've asked around. But again, this is not anything to do with myself right now. I'm talking now, since you already bring up the subject, let's talk about it. It's an interesting subject. The two makifim is a sign of deeper Yiddishamayim and the different reasons given for it explained in different places. But generally speaking, that means wearing a yarmulke and a hat. So you could ask me why I don't wear a hat. At least, if you're not wearing a hat, wear a kaipa. That may, that may be the reason. So you're not wearing a hat, at least you have always two makifim. When the Friedrich Rebbe was in Stalik, Yudshvat, so Yechel and Gordon was one of the people, and he found a yarmulke in the bed. So he wanted to put it on the Rebbe's head, and then he realized the Rebbe had another yarmulke, Friedrich Rebbe. So he realized he wore two yarmulkes. Now, I assume both yarmulkes had double, maybe not. But then again, we also have a yarmulke of the Tzemach Tzedek, and other rabbeim, you see pictures that it is a knitted yarmulke. That's not a double. So just pointing all this out just for information purposes. I'm not here to paskin. Definitely not halacha. But it's just an interesting topic about the Tuma Kifim. And I appreciate your ask, your bringing this up. I'm really not at all disrespectful. I find it to be an appropriate question. And um, what I'll be doing in the future, we'll find out. I'll try my best to have more Yerushalayim, definitely. Tuma Kifim. Since we're on the subject, I might as well share a little humorous story that I once heard when uh, Nachman Bayalik, the poet for Israel, once went to Meir Sha'arim and he was looking for a shul to say Kaddish for his father's yard One of the Yerushalma little boys, Meir Sha'arim, was there, so he says to the Yerushalma boy in, in fluent Yiddish, Vuiz da shul, where's a shul? So the boy says to him, A shul is not Farid, a shul is only for Jews. He says, how do you know I'm not, I'm, I'm not a Jew? And this man, mind you, speaking fluent Yiddish. Well, the Tuxish can keep it. You're not wearing a, a covering, a head covering. So Bialik, the poet he was, says, Kippah Shemayim. The whole heaven is my Kippah. It's called Kippah Shemayim, the heavenly canopy. So the boy says to Bialik, Too big of a covering, head covering, skull cap for such a small head. So I just wanted to throw that in as well. 
So you need to have a yarmulke has to also fit you. It can't just be a makif aroch. It has to be a makif that fits you and uh, serves as a reminder that there's a higher presence. Okay. That covers that. If anybody has any further comments, please share. Let's do a fo- two, follow- a few, two follow-ups. The Chassidus question, then the essays. One follow-up is, last week about, about sort- the Chassidim not being scrupulous with blessings on trees. Last week's episode. So when asked, Chassidim not being scrupulous to make blessings on the trees, what's your source? <laughs> I don't have a source. The source is sometimes called Mitzias. The Mitzias is that you don't see Chassidim, especially Elter Chassidim, that went out of the way to go make brachas on Nilonis. The Rebbe, as far as what we were able to see, also did not. So it's not a source. It doesn't, I didn't say that it says in any place that chassidim don't make brach. It just says that we don't find the mitzvahs. You just don't find them going out and making And I explained why. I don't think it needs more explanation than that. So, sorry. Okay. Second question, I spoke, you spoke about, thank you for your comments on Er Abba last week. Last week's chassidim's question was about mitzvah. Spoke about Erabah, the light of Abba Chochmah and Bittl. You introduced it by describing the Alter Rebbe's inimitable style. I thought your presentation was also inimitable. My follow-up question is this. I looked at Lukut Tatera Mitzayra with a non-Chabad friend whom I had learned the Sikh with. He was amazed by breadth and depth of material in the small section we read. He lamented that there was no one in town we could readily go to for more explanation. Would you have any suggestion how this, how those of us who live out of town might obtain a Rebbe for this purpose. Thank you. Well, learning Chassidus requires, in most cases, a teacher. Because sometimes the words can be cryptic, sometimes not so clear. Like you asked me the question, I did my best to try to explain it. Today, thank God, you can either find someone where you are, or you can go online. And if you go online, you'll find many, many good Chassidus classes. I'm not plugging my own, but I teach every day I am based. There's a lot of hundreds of classes online explaining dense and difficult topics in Chassidus. But there are also teachers as well. So look around. Obviously we need a lot more. A lot more of good teachers who can take Chassidus and explain it in a way that makes it palatable and understands and deciphers and helps us understand Al Rebbe's profound insights. But it's doable. And each of us has to see ourselves as being responsible to try our best. So my answer to you is threefold. First, do your fr- best. Do you and your friend do the best, and try your best. Two, go online and look, see if there's others that are teaching that, res- that res- resonates with you, and learn from them, and see how they would apply it, and then say, okay, how can I apply that methodology in my own? And finally, in your own town, I don't know where you live, look around. You never know. I understand in certain towns you're not going to have many options. You never know. You ask around. Chaver chaver isle. One person leads you to the next. But I think through doing that, especially with a strong will to do it, that's how you get there. And you'll find people, and it begins to, you begin to learn the method. And you, I'm not going to say we, any one of us masters it, but as you learn more of it, you become more, more, um, more, um, you, assimilate more you assimilate it more, you become more, uh, master, you become more uh, comfortable with being able to understand chassidus. But always ask the question, what is the relevance of this line of chassidus to my life? Even if you don't fully have an answer, the question itself is half an answer. The question will compel you and say, okay, it must have a message to me. It must have a relevance. So that's my answer to that. Now let's do the, another Chassidus question, even though I did one before about the right side of the heart. But here's another one, and which is relevant to our time. And then we'll do the three essays. Okay. What is the deeper meaning of the Omer counting and the refinement of each of the seven times seven emotions? So we know when we count the Omer, 
we count and every, in, in many sedurim, including our sedurim, it says on each day chesed shabbat chesed, gvur shabbat chesed, tefer shabbat chesed. So you have the seven midas from chesed through malchus, and seven times seven is forty-nine days corresponding to each day. So the first week was chesed, chesed shabbat chesed through malchus shabbat chesed. The second week we did already was gvur chesed shabbat gvur through malchus shabbat gvur. Third last week was Chesed Shabbat Teferes through Malchus Shabbat Teferes. And now we're in the work, work week of Netzach. So the question is asking, what is the deeper meaning of the Omer and the refinement? Because we say that it should be Mezuchich and Tohir, we say in the Hirotzen, and Lezachim called Tumas Nafshenu. In other words, to refine each one of these, 7 times 7, 49 emotions. Another questioner asks, what's the difference between, for example, Chesed Shabbat Gvura and Gvura Shabbat Chesed? Okay, so I actually did a book called The Spiritual Guide to Counting the Omer that answers exactly this. It's one, as I write, of many different applications that takes the spheres and translates it in the language that each of us can understand how we can refine our own personalities. It's become very popular, and thank God, and it's available, you can buy the book, but it's also available as a free app, My Omer. You can also get it by emails, by email, just subscribe to us for free subscription. And look online at MeaningfulLife.com. You'll see Omri, you'll see many resources regarding this. Basically, it is a 49-step step, a forty-nine step journey toward personal refinement, looking at each part of us. Taking Chesed Shebegvura and Gvura Shebechesed as an example. Chesed Shebegvura, Gvura is discipline. But discipline alone can sometimes be very harsh. So you need, to have a, you need something that tames it that miles it, that you recognize the chesed, the kindness within gvura, that the discipline is in order to bring out kindness. Gvura sheba chesed is the other way around. Someone can have a lot of love and un, undiluted love, unbridled love, and it doesn't stop. And you could kill someone with love. Just like water, if it's not raindrops, gvura is kshamim. If you don't have gvura sheba chesed, the discipline of chesed, the water will flood the field and, and equally damage it, just like a, a drought. Reif teve en yechem lekabel. Too much good is too abundant good, cannot be received. So the key is balance. That the love should have a gvurusha b'chesed, that's the breaks, that says the chesed should be given spoon-fed, step-by-step, absorbable to the student, to the recipient. And that is, and of course, each one of the 49 has its own particular personality. There are many ways to explain it. I did it one in that book, and that, I believe, is a good way to go. Now, many people ask me, what are the sources of what I took, where I took that from? So the sources are many because some of them are actual maimorim uh, that spell out in Sefirah Seymour, which I'll read to you in a moment. And others I had to extrapolate because like here the Alter Rebbe says, what you say this is sometimes gevurah So from that you can extrapolate. And I was able to actually find for all of them either a direct source or almost a direct source. So here's someone writes, which I think is, helps answer this. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, maybe you want to share with your audience Maybe you would like to share with your audience, there's a beautiful maimer where the Rebbe explains the meaning of Svirus, Svirus Shabbat example, Chesed Shabbat Chesed. The maimer is Parsha B'chukesei Tovshin Yud Ches, Lohoven Inya Svirus Eimer. So the Rebbe said that a maimer Tovshin Chai, yes. And I will add, he also said a maimer that Mishcheni, also Tovshin Chai, I believe before that, also speaks about it. But just to round out, I will absolutely announce it, that actually the Rebbe's Maimur is based on Maimurim before him. Mishcheni Tof Reish Samach Hei. I'm sorry, Tof Reish Nun Hei. Mishcheni Tof Reish Nun Hei. Um, and Mishcheni Tof Reish Samach Ches, which is Hanoche. Vesfartem. 
In Sefer Mamorim Yiddish, there's a Maimah called Bisfartem. Mishcheni, as I said, Tov Now, I should also add, as, a, as cross-reference, episode 63 and 113, where I discussed this as well. With that, let us go now to the Chassidus Applied Essays, 2018. As I said, we began a few weeks ago reading from the winners down. And we're, these are still in the top ten. I read the five, I read eight. Now the next three after the eight. Nine, in order nine, ten, and eleven, in the order as they were as as they were marked by the judges, going from the highest down. So eight, nine, eleven. So the first one is an English one. Head or heart, a study of dealing with conflict by Adel Cohen, age twenty-three, Brooklyn, New York. She writes one of the most beautiful, one one of the most wonderful things about Torah is its timeless message. Is its timeless relevance. Not only does Torah guide us in our physical and spiritual lives, it helps us in our emotional lives as well. Chassidus in particular has a great capacity to help us in our emotional lives. One concept that Chassidus clarifies for us is the conflict between serving Hashem with our seichel, our brain, and logical reasoning, and our midas, our heart, and feelings. This essay will explore how we can live the healthiest, healthiest lives possible by merging these conflicting concepts. I will be outlining the approach of Chassidus on the subject based on a sikha from the Rebbe. A parallel will be drawn to the psychological methodology of dialectical behavior, behavior therapy, a technique that recognizes conflicting entities and seeks to merge them without compromising either viewpoint. We will see how Chassidus ultimately shows us the fullest way to merge opposite viewpoints. Very well written, beautiful essay. Nice, the ideas are familiar, but... Well structured, original, and uh, I commend you for writing it. And speaks about it also in very practical terms. Goes through the whole process of intellect and emotion and how they speak to each other, and very fascinating parallels with the CBT, which is DBT rather, dialectic behavioral therapy, which is a very common therapy used today. And you could see actually its roots in Chassidus, which some who are familiar with it have pointed out. And then concludes with a whole module of merging brain and heart, how you talk about things that you're about your feelings, um, when you're upset about something, how to address it. If you feel guilty, how to see the good in every side of an argument, um, how to deal with children. So it really comes down to a whole series of models of uh, model, model, uh, model behavior in different areas of life based on the head and heart uh, di, uh, di, dialogue and, and uh, conversation and discourse. Okay. That's essay number one. Next, next essay is Sfiris HaChochmah, The Solution to Our Postmodern Crisis. This is a lesson, this is an essay in Hebrew. Excellent essay. Sfiris HaChochmah, HaPitaron, L'Shever HaPostmoderni, in Hebrew. And here he goes into a, um, to the dichotomies that exist and that addresses this is written by, I should add, Avram Goldschmidt, age 22, Brooklyn, New York. And he goes into the, the, the discussion of the, the difference between rationalism and empiricism, which is a classical difference between how you look, how scientific, psychological models, one looks at everything through empiricism, is through experience, is the key arbiter, the key definer of how we understand things. The other is through rational thinking, and these are actually two different types of philosophers and psychologists, but he uses this as being actually creating a serious dichotomy and how Chassidus resolves this issue by giving us a... Uh, so he breaks down into five parts, this, uh, the rationalist and the empiricist. Um, the problem 
with just rationalism alone because it creates a vacuum, an intellectual vacuum without connected to reality. Addresses it in the context of, um, um, of mysticism and some of the unknowns that are involved with that. And then finally, the resolution, bridges the ayin and yesh from ayin to the bina that really bridges an abstract reality with the real practical existence and does it in a very creative and original way, which definitely will be a great contribution to this discussion and uh, also practical in our own personal lives. And finally, essay number three, ego, yes or no? Ego, Kenole, Moshe Rosenblatt, age 37, Er Yehuda, Israel. And this essay is, of course, as the name clearly implies, is ego a good thing or not a good thing? And of course, like understanding that it's not a black and white answer. There are positive elements to the ego, there are negative elements to the ego, but how do you balance the two? That's the big question. The conflict of the ego, ego challenge. Do we go with an approach of eliminating the ego, which has its side, bad, bad has, has negative consequences? Do you go with the side of feeding the ego? Of course, that has negative consequences. And he takes this uh, conflict and turns it into different ways that you can solve this dilemma, and finally comes away how Chassidus resolves it with, based on uh, based on my modem and Sichus, which address three models: Chava, Noyach, and Sora. And uh, the Maimonim of Chayes Soda, and um, uh, let's see, the Maimonim of the Rebbe, Malukit, and other places, and addresses how you come to a point where Soda is Bittel and Metzias together, Malchus, whereas Chava and Noyach each had a, a one quality, but also a, a vice in their approach to ego. And finally, Soda is the one that combines the two into a beautiful synthesis. So that is with the essays. Thank you very much for that. All these essays are posted at MeaningfulLife.com slash MyLife. And you can look at the essays there of 2018. They're posted each week. And also, if you subscribe, we send out the essays to anyone who wants to receive them. But to anyone who subscribes, you automatically will get an update as the essays are posted. They're excellent essays. They will definitely enrich your life. And with that, let us conclude with being... Uh, the, this has been My Life Citizen Supplied, episode 210. Again, we depend on your donations and your contributions and generosity to keep this program growing and expanding and developing at MeaningfulLife.com slash sponsorship. We're here every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m. Everyone have a very gebenched and blessed week and a blessed Chedesh year, a month of refinement, a month of Sephartim comes from the word counting, but also telling a story, Sipur and Sapir, which is illumination. So until next week, everyone be blessed. Thank you.